this week. I hope you uh, don't regret it by the end of the week. It's, uh, it's really great to see uh, one of the um, students that I have talked, um, uh, taught. I'm talking about Dale Buchanan. It's great to see him in action here in ministry, and I hope that, uh, that um, it's a good reflection that the fact that you want to see more of him this week in, in, in the form of these students down below. Um, I can tell that um, Dale is actually going to have a really enjoyable week telling me what to do. So if you'd like to know what kind of student that Dale was, then please just come and see me on the quiet and have a nice little chat. We're going to be in First John this morning and um, we've decided as a team that uh, we will when we speak and do devotions and so forth, that we'll, where possible, uh, do it from First John. So I'm going to um, open up with chapter 1 this morning, and I want to do so by uh, just telling you about a little parenting experiment that I, that I engaged in recently. Now, I just need to preface this by saying that some of you will be horrified at this, okay? Um, uh, but please, just... Have a little faith in me. I know you don't know me. Don't, my wife was actually very horrified at this too, so you're in good company. But there was a point to this little experiment. I don't plan on making this a habit. Uh, we have three boys who we love dearly, uh, and they are 10, 13, and 14 going on 15. And the two, the middle one and the, um, the middle one and the youngest one, well, how can I say this? I, I just always at each other, and it's it's really the middle one always annoying the youngest one. You, a few of you got that kind of situation in your homes. It's day after day after day to the point. You, what what do you do to change this? And so I finally said, and here's my little par- parenting experiment. I said to the middle one. I will give you, I'm trying to be careful not to mention his name, uh, I will give you $50 if you can go five days without annoying your little brother. You see, you're horrified, aren't you? Well, part of me wasn't going, part of me was going to not be surprised if he, you know, after an hour he was back to annoying his brother. And, and the other part of me, knowing how much he loved money, was not going to be surprised if he made it the whole five days. In fact, it quickly became apparent that he was going to make the five days. And the remarkable thing was that not once did I see him struggle. Not once did he even come close to annoying his brother. Right? It wasn't like he's gritting his teeth and thinking, oh, the $50, the $50. It was just like it was a walk in the park for him. And so after the five days, I... Much to the dismay of my wife, I handed over the $50 and, and I drove the boys, the three boys to school that day and I said to, I said to them, you know, isn't it amazing how so and so, you know, referring to the middle son, isn't it amazing how, uh, just a $50 made such a change in, in his life. Just $50. I mean, gone from annoying his younger brother every single day without fail to all of a sudden transformation. $50 was a real life changer. Just remarkable. And I said, you know, here's the point, boys. 
And I, I said some other stuff, but just to, you know, for the sake of time, that's what Jesus came to be for us. A life changer. I use the word treasure because that's really what the $50 was to my son. It was a treasure. Jesus Christ didn't come just to simply take us to heaven. He came to change our lives. He came to be our treasure. Now, I didn't expect that they would suddenly drop down in repentance and, you know, bow before the Lord and worship and suddenly transformation that from that point on. Not at all. In fact, he's gone back to annoying his brother. But I do hope from that little parenting experiment that they will never forget it. They will always remember one thing, and that is that Jesus Christ came to be a life changer, came to be their treasure, came to change their lives. And you see, that's why John here in these first four verses mentions the word life three times. In fact, he even refers to Jesus as life. Not that Jesus brings life, though that's true, but that Jesus is life, the life appeared. Now that's not really so strange when we think about it to talk like that. We might say, he is my life, referring to a boyfriend or a spouse, or or we might say, she is my life. I've heard people say, work is my life. I remember one lady saying to me at church once, my kids are my life. In 2011, my mother died and I went back to the funeral in New Zealand, which is where I am from, if you couldn't have guessed the accent by now. And over from her tombstone was another tombstone and on the tombstone read, golf was her life. You see, what do these very, what do people mean when they say such and such is my life? They mean these things have changed my life. He, she, my work, children, golf, have changed my life. And that's what John is saying that Jesus is. He's a life changer. And in verses 5 to 10 of this first chapter, John goes on to describe the essence of a changed life. And perhaps you'd love for your life to change. Perhaps if you're a wife, you'd love for your husband's wife to change. If you're a husband, you'd love for your wife's life to change. John's answer to how life changes might actually surprise you. It might not be what you think. Let's go and look at it. In verse 5, you see, to experience life, the big overarching point for John is that God is light. Right? To experience life is to experience God as light. He says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What do you think of when you think of a light? Look up at the roof and, and see these lights. What do you think of? What do lights do? You come into a dark room and you turn the lights on. Oh, that's where the remote is. Oh, that's where I left that book. You can see when you turn on the light. That's what a light, that's what lights do. They reveal. 
And so if God is light, that means that he sees everything. He's like a giant spotlight. He sees you. He sees inside of you. He sees inside your head, inside your mind. He knows what you're thinking right now. He sees you like no one else sees you. You can't hide from him because that's who he is. He's light. Now, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel that God can see everything, everything about you? Now, one way to try and react to this is to try and hide and go into the darkness and try and hide from God and others so that no one can see what we're really like. Now ask yourself, what would it look like to live in the dark? What would it look like to live in the dark? In John's day, this is just a little bit of background to, John, to this book of First John. In John's day, some who were once in this church, not the people that he is writing to, but people that these readers are aware of, were once part of the church and now what John calls in the dark. Now, I don't know what that conjures up in your mind, but you need to know that these people aren't evil. They haven't gone off into drugs. They're not sleeping around. They're not involved in gross immorality or anything like that, as far as we know. Certainly no indication in First John that they are. Rather, these people think of themselves as quite righteous. In fact, if we, were to, if we were to go through 1 John and do a little Bible study through the book, which we're not going to, but if we were going to, we'd see that they think they have a special anointing from the Holy Spirit. They think they have a very close, intimate relationship with God, something that perhaps they think these readers that John is writing to lack. They are what you might call, one commentator referred to them as spiritual know-it-alls. They think they're tight with God. They don't think they're immoral or, or wicked or anything like that at all. And from what we can see, that they're probably not. And they made various claims about themselves. They claimed in verse 6 to have fellowship with God. They claim in verse 8 to be without sin. They claim in verse 10 to have not sinned. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what these people mean when they... It's certainly, you know, it's, obviously it's pretty clear what they mean. We have fellowship with God. They think they have a relationship. Pretty hard to know what they mean when they say we've not sinned. As I've already said, John never accuses them of any kind of wicked conduct. But what is clear here is that they clearly believe that they are upright and righteous and spiritual. But what's clear from John's point of view is that they're not as clean as they think they are. They're not being honest. They're not being honest before God and they're not being honest with each other. In fact, John says they're living a lie. 
And I want to ask you this morning, very delicately if I can, because you're never, I don't know anyone here, basically, you're a new church, but I ask it because it comes out of the passage. Are you living a lie this morning? You see, it's very easy to live a lie. There's all sorts of ways in which we can hide away from reality, hide from who we really are. We can deny that we have a problem with anger. We can deny that we have a problem with some kind of addiction. We can even deny things like we don't like church. We can deny that we struggle with maybe telling, talking to people about Jesus. We can deny that really at, t- at times we just feel dry and, and we struggle in our relationship with the Lord. You know, for years, I would deny to myself that I get easily frustrated. I would deny it internally, and if, and if my wife would kind of mention it, either to myself or to others, I'd suddenly get defensive. I'm not a frustrated person. I don't get frustrated easily. I, because I wanted to think of myself, and I wanted others to think of myself as calm. Nothing flusters me kind of guy. And, you know, what would that would say something about my relationship with God too, wouldn't it? That would surely speak positively about my relationship with God if I was that kind of person. But, you know, I'm the kind of person who does get frustrated quickly. I've denied that for years. There's other things I could tell you about that I've denied as well but look what John says in verse 6 if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and we do not live out the truth you see the truth is I get very easily frustrated and it's easy though to hide that from everybody it's easy to hide it from, oh, not easy to hide from my family. You can't hide things from your family, can you? But I can hide things from the rest of you. But here's the question. How can I have a genuine relationship with you if I hide in the dark? How can I have a genuine relationship with you if you don't know who I am? You see, this explains why John says what he does in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Did you notice that? The first half of the verse. If we walk in the light, did you notice the next part? If we walk in the light, what would you expect the next part to say? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with who? We have fellowship with who? We have fellowship with one another. Did you see that? Which means that we can't have genuine relationships with one another if we are hiding in the dark. You know, I was with a friend the other day, a good friend of mine, and we were driving together. No one at BST, by the way, 
down the front here, just in case you want to try and guess who it might be. And he confessed to me that he really has a great fear of people not liking him. And he finds himself always agreeing with people. You know, he can be talking to us charismatic and and nodding his head and then talking to an anti-charismatic and still agreeing and nodding his head. Because he wants to be an agreeable person with everyone. He, he, he does not, he wants everyone to like him. And he said to me, you know, Alan, I see inside my heart sometimes and I am so selfish at times. What do you call that little conversation there? Walking in the light. What's going on in that little conversation? Fellowship, genuine fellowship. We're going deep. We know one another intimately. In marriage, I know marriages where the husband has been walking in darkness for years, hiding his addiction to pornography only to be caught. But don't just think, of husbands. I know wives been living for years with their husbands not being honest with them about how they really feel. Out of fear of hurting them or avoiding confrontation or something. But how can you have a genuine relationship with someone when you are hiding? Someone said concerning discipleship, you know, discipling one another, mentoring one another, helping another Christian in the way of the Christian life. If the person you are discipling has never seen you sin, then you haven't spent enough time with them. If the person you are discipling has never seen you sin, then you haven't spent enough time with them. They haven't seen the real you. Unless, of course, you think you never sin. But we're afraid, aren't we? We're afraid people won't like us if they see the real me. I'm afraid that you won't like me if you know that I'm the kind of person who gets frustrated quickly. We're afraid that people will judge us. It's so easy to live as though we're on trial. You know what I mean by trial? courtroom let me give you an example and you know i in some ways i really hesitate to give this example but sometimes you know the examples that perhaps annoy us are sometimes the most clearest they just help us get it you know i don't know what happens you know in your head this may not happen you know I'm, i'm trying to beat around the bush can you tell but what happens when you've got people coming around for a meal Maybe you don't know them too well. I mean, what happens? I can already hear some laughter going on. Everything goes on hold. Why? Tidy the house. Why? Why do we want to tidy the house? Now, of course, you may not, but I do. Why? Because I'm afraid that when people walk into the house in its current state, they'll judge me. 
they'll form an opinion of me. And I'd rather hide behind a tidy house. Hide in the dark. You see, often, perhaps we don't even realize we do it. We live in the light of other people's judgments. It's very easy for this place here to be a courtroom. I stand up here and I speak and I sit down and I wait for the judgments. And I hope they're good. You see, it's very easy in whatever we do to look at life as a courtroom. And we simply live as though in light of what other people think. But is that life? Is that life? That's not life. That's bondage. It really is. You see, Jesus is life because he went into the court, he went to the cross to that courtroom and took our sin and you see he has already taken our judgment do you see you may judge me but the fact is I have already been judged as we prayed before there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus You may experience judgment from others, but the fact is that Jesus has already taken your judgment. And that's why John goes on to say in verse 7, And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. You have already been judged. We no longer need to live in the courtroom of other people's judgments. But our struggle is not only hiding from others, but our struggle is also hiding from God. I came across an article a few years ago, a very insightful article, that talks about how we attempt very subtly to hide from God. And we, you know, we, we all have this, I think, for those of us who are Christians, we all have this deep awareness of how far short we fall. And too many of us, I think, walk around with feeling guilt and condemnation and a great sense of failure having let God down. And you see, what we can do, almost without really even thinking about it, is try to alleviate our guilt by spiritual efforts. The common ones, reading the Bible, or prayer, or saying yes to a ministry, or just being good in general. Now we don't believe these we don't believe these things will save us but we almost we trust in them to alleviate our guilt to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves But you see that's just another form of hiding but this time hiding before God The only way to experience real life is to be is to be not only honest with others but honest with God. That's why he says what he does, the well-known verse in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's something extremely liberating. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. 
But there is something extremely liberating by saying, Lord, I have an anger problem. Lord, I don't want to pray right now. Lord, I'm going through a season where I don't like going to church at the moment. Lord, I am so critical of so-and-so. Lord, I'm struggling to love my spouse. What is that? That's honesty before the Lord. It's exactly what 1 John 1 9 says. Someone once said, Prayer is not a place to be good, prayer is a place to be honest. That could liberate your prayer life right then, I think. Prayer is not a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. And when we are honest with God, he forgives us. For those of you who are parents, just think about what you want from your children. Isn't it honesty? Isn't that the endearing attribute that we all look for? I don't care that you broke the pot. I just want you to admit it. We had a um, well-known preacher, Mike Rader, for those of you who have heard of him, from Melbourne, speak at our graduation a number of years ago. And I'll never forget, he spoke on the shame of the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 2, talks about the shame of the cross. And I'd never thought about it before, but we always think of Jesus hanging on the cross with a loincloth. Well, evidently he was naked. Hanging on the cross, naked, for everybody to see. How embarrassing. How shameful. You know, it makes, you can't help but make me think of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they found out they were naked, what did they do? They hid. But you see, Jesus didn't hide. And the remarkable thing is he didn't stay in the light. He went into darkness for three hours. Why did he submit to such shame? Why did he sit? Who, who here would want to stand before a crowd of people like that? Why did he do it? And the answer is so that we might never have to be ashamed. Before others or before God? You see, others might be ashamed of us, but God never will be. We might fail. We might make mistakes. We might get things wrong. We might mess up. We might sin. But we need never, ever feel any shame before God. Is that not like $50 to a 13-year-old boy, that message? Do you know anyone like that? who would shine on you like a giant spotlight and see everything about you and say, I forgive you. Isn't that like treasure? 
something to live for. In fact, to fix my thoughts on the cross like that, I'm sure is the only way to deal with my frustration problem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how gracious you are. Lord, there is not a person here who does not struggle with walking in the light. We know only too well what we are like and it's a struggle to let other people see that and if we are honest, it's a struggle to even let you see it. This book of First John will go on to say God is love means that when he looks at us, he does not do so with condemnation, but with love. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you for the way that they have welcomed us. Pray that we might enjoy some rich times of fellowship this week. In Jesus' name, amen.